and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we bring you a conversation about nature breakdown in the UK, nuclear war in Europe, the downfall of a World Bank president. We also speak to Helen Clarkson, the CEO of the Climate Group, and to Catherine McKenna, the high level. What do we call her? <laughs> the high level climate action secretary general's group of leading people. That's about right. That's about that one. She's, right. she's a brilliant person. Yeah. What, by, what, a, a rose by any other name would yeah. be as smart. Catherine McKenna, Secretary General's Special Representative for Net Zero. Legendary former Environment Minister of Canada. And we have music from Finnegan Tui. Thanks for being here. Okay, you two, we've got to pack it in this week. I'm sorry not to be with you in the same room. It was so fun last week. But this week um, is equally exciting. So we have Helen Clarkson, who we've wanted to have on for a long time, plus our old friend Catherine McKenna on the podcast. So we have a relatively compressed time now to kick in and give some updates in terms of what we're doing and where we are. Um, Paul, you look worried. What's wrong with you? Or what's wrong in your world? Why are you worried? You know that doom scrolling thing, and you said that there was nuclear war in Europe. I don't think there is. I'm just checking my newsfeed. I think that there's the, the breaking news on war. outrage and optimism. No, you're right. The threat of nuclear war possibly would have been a happier phrasing. Yeah, but I mean, it, it doesn't. Perhaps it doesn't we should start there. Super... There's probably not a bigger story, is there? It doesn't. It doesn't cheer me up that threat. But oddly enough, I think two things about it. One is I have no doubt many brilliant people have spent quite silent careers working towards this moment to try and make sure that they can keep us safe in a variety of different ways. So my heart goes out to them and their their time, effort, energy. But I also think that actually a moment like this does have capacity to sort of galvanise us a little bit. You know, people suddenly work out that life is important. Things are important and things matter. And it's about us sort of becoming what we can become. And I mean, you know, life is about more than luxury and fashion and trying to be cool, that there is meaning and challenge. And weirdly enough, with this nuclear challenge, we can't do much about it, but it helps us recognise that in a similar challenge of, of seriousness, climate change, we really can do things. So I, I hope it can spur us to to sort of become our better selves. That that Although it's a horrific way of getting there, a sort of doom gym, let's call it. Doom gym. Christiana, do you feel better already? Well, no. Well, Paul, I mean, uh, honestly, that's that's quite a push. On, right. uh, if you uh, really on, squint on from a certain... How to get to optimism from... Uh, Heroic, from some might nuclear say. ...nuclear threats, yeah. No, but seriously speaking, uh, what what a week we have had from these absolutely crazy nuclear threats on the part of Putin to his uh, starting a draft that so oh, many Russians are trying to evade. First, getting on planes. Now there is miles and miles and miles of cars in front of the uh, of the um, frontiers with Finland, with Georgia. Um, people are just desperately trying to leave. You know, it is, it is just unbelievable. Russia has had two drafts in its history. Historians will correct me if I'm wrong. One for the First World War and one for the Second World War. And now this. Yeah. And now this. It is, you know, Russians are just not used to this. They have a professional army. They have depended always on their professional army. He has promised on over and over again that they can depend on the professional army and that he will keep uh, civilians, uh, at, uh, he will keep civilians safe. This is unbelievable, unbelievable. And I'm really quite, 
quite upset by um, by that. On, on top of that, at a completely different order of things, David Malpass, the president... Can I just go the- one place? Come back to that in just one sec, but I just want to go somewhere for just a minute on nuclear war because I didn't grow up with the threat of nuclear war like my parents' generation did and before that. So I was sort of unaware, really, as to the scale of it. So I'm just going to go there for 30 seconds. You go to David Malpass. I read a paper from Cornell University on the flight back from New York after Putin threatened war, thinking, what would actually happen? You know, would it be that bad if there was a nuclear war? So I'm just oh, going to... Yeah. If Russia deployed 50% of its nuclear arsenal and that was there was no response because the West realised that it would be mutually assured destruction, 50% of the arsenal would be sufficient to create sufficient levels of dust in the atmosphere that the Northern Hemisphere would not rise above zero degrees for 15 years. 99.8% of people would die. And the phrase that got me in this academic paper was, the living would envy the dead. This is not something that we f*** around with. I'm going to need a bleep clay. Christiana, David Malpass. Well, how does one speak after that, Tom? I mean, obviously they wouldn't deploy 50%, but, but, but it's good to take that extreme just to understand the irresponsibility of even, even making the threat. Um, And one has to then think how desperate is he that he is resorting to that kind of a of a threat. Um, Just on that one, Christiana, uh, I heard someone on the TV say, dictators tend not to have long and happy retirements. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's what we're facing here. Right. Sorry, everyone. I didn't well, mean to take def- us too far no, down that road, but I realised... No, no, just, no. Yeah. A very difficult week because while, you know, we were we were trying to deal with climate change issues during climate week in New York, just a couple of blocks down at the UN, this is what Mm -hmm. they were dealing with. This is what they were dealing with. So honestly, you know, kudos to everybody who, despite this absolutely nightmare scenario, still stayed focused on, uh, on climate change. And, and speaking of focus on climate change or not, yes, or not, (laughs) President David Malpass of the World Bank was asked three times in a public uh, panel whether the fact that Al Gore had accused him of being a climate denier was true. Do you actually understand or believe in climate science? He dodged the question three times and finally said, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Now, that is just absolutely unacceptable. As I have tweeted several times now, and I have repeated the twit, the tweet because I'm <laughs> so angry. <laughs> the, the tweet about the twit. Um, someone who does not understand the threat of climate change, especially to developing countries, cannot, cannot lead the top development institution of the world. He's just got to go. Now we know that there are many in the U.S. government pressing for him to go. And I'm sure it is a very active conversation within the White House. It is not something that the president of the United States can unilaterally do because he does need the board of the World Bank to to support his nomination. But look at this space. I don't think that he has too many days still sitting in Washington, Mr. Malpass. And I mean, just on that one, you know, like this this theory that you can say, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not ill. That doesn't work. 
It doesn't make any sense at all. Sorry, yeah. Tom. No, no, I'm not a doctor. Therefore, I don't understand that cancer can yes. kill anybody. So, that, so therefore, there is not illness, right? Or I, I won't take yeah. action against illness. So Next. Um, by a peculiar twist of fate, I was sat next to David Malpass at a dinner the night before this came out at some fancy dinner in New York. And um, I had lots of chats with him about his attitude towards climate. It's probably rather bad form to um, share this, so this on is your fault, podcast. Tom, no, no. Oh, and, and so what you said, educated right. him, Tom, did you? Yes, yeah, right. Well, I tried, but I didn't get very far. So basically what I, we were talking about coal and gas, and he was saying that obviously, you know, the bank supported decarbonisation, but we still would support gas in places where there might otherwise be coal. So I sort of squinted a bit and said, well, surely in any situation there's a non-zero chance there could be coal, which was sort of tacitly kind of agreed with. So basically the narrative is we're going to do gas, but we've got a different argument for why we would do gas. So I have to say that evening I was like, this is very strange. And we had a conversation around the table in which he was a clear outlier from everybody else who was pushing. We had a sort of one table conversation for part of the evening. And then the next morning I realised this had happened. So um, it was an interesting experience. Now, we're going to go to Catherine McKenna in a minute, but I have oh, well, to... I was at a dinner that yeah. went with even more important people, but I can't even tell you about it. <laughs> it was so important that they really nobody knows who was there. Yeah. I might have been on my own, to be honest with you. But that right. <laughs> um, now, before we move on, I have to also just share uh, one source of outrage from little old UK at the moment. Now, those who have been paying attention will know the UK is doing its best to turn itself into a developing country, which it seems to be managing at a remarkably... Excuse me? Is that meant as an insult to us? No, it's not actually. Uh, it's doing its best. It's, <laughs> I, I appreciate. I appreciate. Tom, you're in such trouble. A nature depleted. I think, I think you would like to rephrase that. <laughs> That's true. The UK is basically doing its best to totally screw itself up, I suppose, is the best way to okay, phrase it. Yeah. That's a much yeah. better so, way so to say it. So, first of all, from yes. an economic perspective, the new government led by Liz Truss has come in. Interest rates are going up and tax cuts are going through, which someone smartly described as driving a car with both the accelerator and the brake down full all the time, which is an interesting situation. The pound has plummeted to roughly parity with the dollar, the lowest level That's in history, which has never happened before. And the piece I want to get to, after Brexit happened, one of the dividends that they claimed, and we all know how I feel about Brexit on this podcast, is that we could now pay farmers to protect nature rather than simply because they own land and allow them to destroy it. There are all sorts of problems with the EU common agricultural policy. And the claim was that we could now improve this situation. This was always looked at with a certain degree of scepticism by people like me, who were afraid that the Conservative government, as soon as growth was under threat, they would throw that on the scrap heap and just do whatever they could and continue not supporting nature recovery in the UK. I should pause here and say you, the UK is the most nature depleted country in Europe. Most of the nature in the UK has already been destroyed. And this was the one chance to get it back. And now we reveal that as the Tory government, the new Tory government is coming in, they are also reversing that one ray of light that was seen as one of the positive things about Brexit and turning it back to the old bottle of just paying people to have land as a subsidy, whether or not they destroy all the nature on their land or not. We were going to move to more like a Costa Rican system, Christiana, where people are paid to protect nature and allow it to recover. This is heartbreaking. Through the rewilding. Through rewilding or just different kind of land management that brought some of those species back. I cannot believe this level of betrayal well sadly i can believe it but i'm appalled by this level of betrayal and there's a still a small window that it could be changed so i would encourage anyone in the uk who cares about this to get behind this 
Poor little thought. Better off paying for rewilding with euros, frankly, than pounds at the moment. That's the problem. But yes. <laughs> so, Tom, I appreciate that you would like to compare the UK to Costa Rica, but just to get the record straight, Costa Rica is at fifty-two percent of forest cover. Uh, not exactly what the UK can boast, but yes, you can try, uh, and they better make more of an effort. <laughs> hey, I, I would take fifteen percent at the moment, or anything you know, I'm, above I'm the. Yeah, yeah. Long ago, you, a squirrel could get from the top of Scotland to the south of England without touching the ground. You know, we had a lot of forest here once. <laughs> Made it into ships and firewood, and I don't know what else. I know. Right, now, um, we have two interviews today. I couldn't join you for your conversation yesterday with Helen Clarkson, but are we going to go there first and hear a wrap-up from her as to what happened in Climate Week? Yes, let's go to that interview because we've just been at Climate Week and Helen Clarkson is the sort of queen spider at the centre of the web coordinator of all of Climate Week, so she'll be the absolute expert on what went on. Helen Clarkson is, of course, the CEO of the Climate Group. The Climate Group are the organisation that come together and coordinate Climate Week. And Helen herself has been in this space for many years. She was previously at Forum for the Future. She's a great leader. So here's Helen. Wise person. Helen Clarkson, Queen Spider. If you will. Helen, thank you so much. We're going to keep this short and sweet because honestly, you're exhausted. We're exhausted. Everybody's exhausted. <laughs> <Yeah>. Honestly, so <laughs> exhausted after that climate week and uh, and everything that you did to prepare before that. And uh, Helen, you've been pretty vocal and public about the fact that commitments and pledges are great, but they're just not enough. And yeah. it is high, 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 highest time to turn those into measurable, transparent uh, actions that are full of integrity and impact. So how did Climate Week help to get that going? Thanks, Christiana. Yeah, and um, I, I guess that we're all exhausted as a sign of, as you said, a good week where a lot happened. Um, so, yeah, our theme this year, as it was last year for Climate Week NYC, was getting it done. We think it's really important to do this move from commitments into action. And so we had a lot less. There were some big announcements this week, but for us, it's much less about the kind of announcement moments than it is about those conversations around action. And so that happened for us on on different levels. We obviously do the big public facing events, the opening ceremony, and then at the hub, we have big plenary conversations. Um, and across those, we were kind of keeping that theme and, and, and underneath that three sort of sub-themes, sub, sub gosh, I can't talk anymore, <laughs> Uh, accountability, justice and urgency. And so in all our conversations, we're trying to bring that out. We also did a lot of roundtables and closed door roundtables where um, CEOs and CSOs, uh, sustainability officers, can actually learn directly from one another behind closed doors and say, actually, how do you do this? And so a lot of what we're yeah. talking about with them is how do you get from that big commitment you make, you make it publicly. And I think we've seen a bit of a kind of over the years, you know, you set your 2030, 2040 commitment, you pat yourself on the back, but then someone's got to wake up tomorrow and turn that into action. And so we did a lot of those across the week as well. Is it actually not the CFO who should be entering into this conversation? Because it is about the decisions that are made by companies about how do they use their resources? Where mm. do they invest? 
Where do they uh, invest into new assets, into new products? How do they uh, how do they manage their um, their balance sheets? Isn't that where the real difficult decisions get made? I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think maybe anyone with C in their title should Chief be in marketing the officer. You know, you've got to sell this to the people and. You, Maybe we've got whoever to, you say it's going to be yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone. So, and I think I said this last year at the opening. Like, but there shouldn't be a climate department now. It needs to be right across because this is existential for business, um, and we know that. And we know that everyone. When when we talk about economics, people get really into like, oh, creative destruction and things come and go. But no one thinks their company is the one that goes right. Everyone thinks that they're. Uh, Netflix and no one thinks they're blockbusters. I've used that example before, but I think it's everyone's mental model is our, you know, kind of our will be fine. But you're only going to be fine if you bring all those decision makers in. So I think CFO, CSO, CEO, we do get a mixture of those here, but essentially now we've got to move climate right into the heart of the strategy of the business and ask that question of, you know, what are you doing in a kind uh, a carbon constraint. What is this business doing in a carbon constrained world, and how is it contributing? But also just those sort of fundamentals of business. And obviously, something you know, much better carbon pricing regimes would help that decision making happen more automatically. Um, but without that, I think we, there's lots of tools that all of us can push on why this is so important um, for businesses. Don't be Kodak, I think. Um, <laughs> Helen, I mean, I'm always uh, dazzled by your ability to bring together non-state actors, the under two coalition, corporations, particularly some of the amazing work you've been doing, kind of aggregating demand and trying to push things through. And I know that you've talked before about speaking to your members, corporations, whatever, about, you know, what's stopping you from going faster. I had a question about, you know, to what degree do you think um, we need to start being more specific on on policy uh, specification? And I asked this because I was talking to someone about this from a big company and they said, oh, I, I'm not here with my policy person or my public affairs person. I'm wondering, should the public affairs people be coming to Climate Week yeah. next year? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the really big barriers now is particularly in the US. I mean, maybe that's just a bit finger pointing, but that there's a, quite a divide between, say, the public affairs people and the sustainability people. And I think we all have to work out how to get over that because we all, I think we all know that there are people and companies who are fully committed to doing the right thing down the corridor. There's someone going and lobbying against it. And I think that, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in any way at all, but I think it's true to say there's a lot of money going into the other side of this fight yeah. and, and the kind of rallying around every sort of little, you know, bit of grit you can throw in the wheels on policy is happening and people wanting to slow the agenda, wanting to protect the status quo and so on. So I think, it, you know, where you see really good joined up policy, that's what we really, we really want to see. And, you know, with the companies that we work with, they do engage in policy. They do understand that what you do when you've aggregated this demand side signal, which is what a lot of what Climate Group does, it's not just about sitting around and pointing at it and going, well, look how many companies want to do this. It's saying, right, well, actually, what are the barriers to doing that? And going after quite specific policy barriers and doing that in places like, uh, you know, uh, I think end of last year, we did a big letter in Japan because the structure of PPAs meant that the... Um, companies in RE100 can't hit their renewable targets. It's very powerful to say to the Japanese government, you've got 50 companies here who really want to buy renewable energy. And I think one thing that we're finding with the corporate commitment to 100% renewable electricity globally, when they get to sort of 97, 98%, which a lot of the companies are doing, in a company's mind, very generalized, but you know, 
well, that's a rounding error, right? You know, whereas for us, that 2%, that 3%, that's the most interesting bit. Why can't you get to 100? Where are the markets where nothing is happening at all? How can we find other companies in those markets that can't buy renewable energy? And I think for something like renewable energy, there can be a bit of a story like, oh, it's done. We've hit a tipping point. And I worry about that notion of tipping points that our sort of mental images you hit a tipping point and everything is like downhill from there we've done it whereas actually those last bits um we've really got to keep going and we know that that renew that energy transition is so so urgent particularly as we electrify other bits of the economy mm. indeed indeed helen so after an exhausting but very productive week what are you still outrageous about and what are you optimistically looking forward to? I'm outraged that we see pictures from places like Pakistan and, and feign surprise at that somehow. And I think we've it's right to be shocked by that. But I've uh, sort of some of the tone is like, who would have thought this would happen so soon when we've all been saying it? So I think that, you know, I'm not surprised by what we see on the news. And, and I've, I, I, I think it's yeah, that sort of story that somehow we, that this is. I can quote you, uh, Helen. Shocking. You said you said we can be shocked, but we can't pretend to be surprised. I was like, yes, oh. that was my quote. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm recycling it. There Absolutely. Um, what I'm optimistic about, as I said, the, the just the just the sheer number of people who wanted to be involved. You know, turning people away from events, saying sorry, we're overbooked, go over there. That's you know, you don't want to turn people away, but it shows the, the level of enthusiasm, and, I, and that gives me a lot of optimism. Awesome. Well, Helen, thank you so much. Do get some rest now that you're <laughs> home um, and uh, get get quickly get some rest because then we have to keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> very well earned rest. Thank, thank you, you so Helen. much. Really thank it. you, Helen. Thanks. Okay, how great to hear that conversation with Helen. I was so sad. I've been so excited to have her on the podcast for such a long time. And yet, when the moment came, I couldn't make it. And I couldn't intrude upon my Sunday. But thank you both for making the time. Um, anything couldn't you want to... Sorry? Couldn't or wouldn't? <laughs> couldn't, Paul. Couldn't. 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 I yeah, if I possibly could have done, I would have done. Um, <laughs> however, what did you both leave that conversation with? And then we've got a very, a very exciting second conversation that we're going to dial in in a minute. Well, as I said at the beginning, I, I was truly impressed that with all of this incredible craziness uh, going on at the UN that so many people, and she herself said, so many people were still focused on uh, on climate. Now, the whole purpose of the Climate Week, as she has explained, was to go from commitments to actions. So that's going to be an interesting take when we talk to Catherine McKenna because that is what she is trying to test for. Are we actually moving from commitments to actions? But my concern is we have been doing that for several years. It's not like that is the novelty in 2022. As far as I'm concerned, that is exactly where we were after the Paris Agreement. Now we have an agreement. Now let's implement it. So... Oh. No, no, I seem to remember in 2017, the slogan for Climate Week was, let's just talk a bit more, wasn't it? No. No, I mean, <laughs> sarcasm is the lowest form of witch talk. <laughs> is it? It's my only form. Paul, what did you leave the discussion with? Uh, I, I kind of, I like Climate Week because it's a bit like Davos, except it's all about climate. Um, 
I even went to an event where there was at the other side of the room the extraordinary Klaus Schwab hovering uh, amongst executives talking about Christiana is right, talking about things that they've always talked about. But there was this concentration of people. You, you, you know, there were very interesting events with kind of high-level people partnering. I think I mentioned to you that uh, I went to a very exciting meeting on on Monday, which was a sort of a, a, a NGOs talking about a pivot to to policy. But then, then on on Wednesday, the the pivot point report was launched by the UK climate uh, the the climate champions, Nigel Topping spoke and all the rest of it. And I, I actually think that that narrative that we're moving more uh, now towards getting serious uh, all you know all the ships in the flotilla pointing towards this single decisive point uh, that we need to sort of change the rules of the game to, to make sure we don't all lose it that came through so I was very excited by that cool Right, now we should press on because we have another interview today and we've been trying for a long time to get the brilliant Catherine McKenna on the podcast. She has, of course, been on the podcast before, but she's particularly relevant at this moment because the Secretary General, after the last COP, the Secretary General asked her to lead a high-level group looking into the integrity of net zero. That's obviously a topic we've come back to many times in the course of the last few months. And that report is going to be out in just a couple of months now. And she was very active in Climate Week, running consultations, talking to people. This is such a delicate balance. How do you get the balance between integrity and momentum right in those commitments to ensure you don't scare people off and make it seem impossible for them to achieve it, but also you have enough integrity to ensure that they really do do what they say they're doing. Getting that right is Catherine's job at the moment. So should we try and give her a call? Very big job. Let's do it. The magic telephone. All right. Clay, can we dial her in? Yep. One, one second. I've, you guys are recording. I've got her. I'll put in her number now. Go for it. Into the magic telephone. So, Paul, um, do you remember Adam from AJR who came on the podcast a little while ago? I do. Yeah. I do. So they're playing in London on Saturday and he just WhatsApped me and offered us tickets. Do you want to come? Wow. Um, I am supposed to be having dinner with some old friends, but I could. what time's the concert? Uh, I think it's like 8.30. I'm got my, Natasha's coming. The kids are coming. Go. Clay, it's good, right? Yeah, I saw them in Detroit. They're great. And he said we can come backstage and hang out with him afterwards. Mm, backstage, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm torn. Dream. I may have to. I may have to put my old friends on the shelf. Christiana, you'd be in on this if you were in London, but you can't. Leave I again. know okay. I will not be there, but have right. fun. Hello, okay. that's Catherine. Hello, hello, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. You good to see all of you? How's it going? Did we just climate. see you in New York? I know we did just see you. Um, I was laughing because I was just reading about the tweets about Mall Pass. <laughs> I saw you were out there, Christiana. I just did a tweet too. I'm like, okay, can you just like, I don't really no. know what's going on. We don't even have time. Why Why no. is he still there? Why is he still there? Exactly, exactly. Yes, out, out with that guy. I mean, we're, we're not um, even like, the fact he doesn't believe in climate change is obviously a problem. The fact they're not scaling money and leveraging the private sector is a bigger one. But I mean, they're related. Well, but they're related. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because neither does he understand the threat nor the opportunity. Yeah. Voila. Hey, Catherine, this is Clay. I'm the producer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Um, we're all set. I'm recording your side of the call and you've got your AirPods in. So okay. thank you. You're welcome. Okay. We're all good. Anything else, Clay? No. Over to you. Thanks, Clay. Okay, great. 
Catherine, thanks so much. You must still be jet lagged uh, from not from traveling from New York to Canada, but actually just by running around New York City for uh, for such a long, long climate week for you. But Catherine, I have a question for you, and that is okay. having spent six years in the bowels of UN nomenclature. <laughs> how on earth? How on earth do they make you the chair? of the high-level expert group on net zero emissions commitments of non-state entities. I mean, <laughs> honestly, right? Because it was written on the door, you'd have to get a bigger it's, door. It, it, it's, it's three lines long. It doesn't even collapse into an acronym. Um, and Thank yet, God, though. Yeah. It, it is such an important initiative of yep. the Secretary General. So I know. You know can what? You, this is can a you problem please? with climate. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know what? Honestly, like in climate world, people need to talk like real people. It's not that hard. Yes. Um, and the funny thing is, so the name is so long, but then they've shortened it to H like H like like that's better. I was like, oh, H like like I don't know what to say about this. Um, look, uh, I mean, first of all, like no one knows what non-state actors are. Like, if we just talk like real people, oh my gosh. So really, it's about net zero commitments by. Um, corporations, financial institutions, cities, and regions. And then sub that, if you were to try to explain, and the Secretary General has been out on this, he's worried about greenwashing in particular by, Thank you. by, Can by we, large corporates and financial institutions. Catherine, why don't we just say your group is the policing group for greenwashing? How's that? That's fine. Although you guys are all about outrage and optimism. So of course we're all outraged by greenwashing, but I think there's also the idea that we also want to lift up the folks who are doing the work, which is separating the wheat from the chaff, which is what you do when mm. you tackle greenwashing, right? The problem is everyone's like thrown into like, you're all, you know, greenwashing, you're not doing real stuff. And there are people who are doing things. I met many of them. We're working through this. It's hard, especially figuring this out and getting action right now. So there are good people out there. But yes, yes. Could we just talk like real people in climate? No wonder everyone tunes, you know, there, there's a number of people who in Canada, that is like tuning out. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds very weird. I care about climate, but it doesn't sound very compelling, <laughs> but not like you guys, not like you guys, you guys talk like real people. Yeah, we've we've never met anyone who wakes up and says it's a good day for some decarbonisation even, right? I mean, just the, the, the normal day-to-day language is very removed. So, Catherine... Well, I'm, you know, when I yeah. started, just to say, yeah. okay, we're going to ruin this with the just no, anecdotes, no. but <laughs> when I started as minister, like, I'd really been in the job for, like, two minutes, and the Prime Minister was like, get on a plane, you're going to COP21. And then I was like, am I going to ask the question? And then I was like, well, there are no dumb questions. What's a cop? And then they told, they told me conference of the parties. And I was like, that doesn't even mean anything. I was like, oh, for the love of God, for the love of God, can we change how we talk? So anyway, I've tried. I've tried to talk like a normal person because I was a normal person before I got into the climate world. I actually worked on issues that were related. I worked on human rights and good governance and I worked in developed countries, but 
it's funny because I've always maintained that because I, I, when I started, I didn't know what anyone was talking about. They're like mitigation, adaptation. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So radiative forcing. You know, yes, right. We're going to try to be normal here, right? All right, like we're, we're going to be normal. Regular people. But normal. speaking of well, normal, normal-ish. I mean, thank you for getting on that plane going to COP21 because Christiana and I were there and we were very excited when you came in. And I have to say for many years, I would say, I don't think I'll ever get tired of saying Canada's back. That moment when you arrived exactly. back in there, Canada's back. It was the first <laughs> bit of real. That was understood by everyone. Oh, After Canada. a while, Canadians got sick of that. They were Did like, they? okay, we don't care about Canada's back. Show me the money. But yes, it was good. I should have retired right after yeah, that. Yeah, it's quite amazing. amazing. Like yeah. on the super high. That would have been a very short career in climate right. change if you retired very right after your very, very first sure. appearance. Canada's back. Thank you very much. That's right. Actually, I did do something though. Like, actually, Canada back obviously was not in my notes. I mean, right. our negotiators were living under like the dark regime, the previous <laughs> government, where it was like obstructionist, probably encoded language. But I looked at the comms and I was like, what is anyone saying here? And I just actually rewrote it. And it, it in a way, I was like, we believe in the science. We need ambition. We need a deal. We need to, like, and, and then I just said, Canada's yeah. back. And then everyone so- cheered. And I realized, oh, okay, if you talk that like was easy. Person, people like people it. People will yeah. react. Yeah. Yeah. Being all around the table, then everyone back to yeah. mitigation, adaptation. And then yeah. I was like, okay, this is really good. And a, and a long here. road to the H leg. Exactly. On a long road to the H leg. Long and winding road to the H leg. It really hasn't gotten better. Hasn't gotten right. better. Okay. We'll try. We try. So, we Catherine, try. what is the H to leg? Task. Come on. To task. Okay. Well, okay. So, do you want to know what the H leg is? Give okay, us so, the we talk to the high yeah. level. Well, I mean, the, the SG has been clear. He's really worried about greenwashing. And, and like, you know what? There's so, of course, there are st- voluntary standards uh, like people would know Race to Zero, science-based target initiative, uh, GFANS, part of Race to Zero. So maybe they've heard of that, although once again, we're in a lot of acronyms like GFANS. But the reality is if you go to a store, they're like net zero bacon. Your regular person is like, is this really net zero? I don't know. Or we've got the net zero oil sands alliance. Like there's just like lots of net zero going around and, and different versions like net zero. It's like carbon neutral. There's like, like millions of ways to say all of this. And the reality is I just want us to be less dramatic and less like, and more real. So everyone's making these commitments, but we need to just be real. The science is the science. So saying net zero is easy. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we, you know, when Canada came up with a new target, that's the easy part. It's doing the work. And so having clear standards and criteria, a price of admission, if you are going to say you are net zero or like, you know, now, which very few people are, um, or net zero line, that's got to mean things. And so it's a whole range of things that have come up. Like, what does it mean to be net zero? So obviously we need to be based on the science, the science of 1.5. And uh, there are different pathways. You need to be on a low to no overshoot pathway. Once again, not super accessible language, <laughs> but you need to deliver. You need to deliver on that. You can't say you're going to do this and the pathway is going to take you nowhere near what you need to be on the science. And then there's the idea of net. What is the net of zero? Once again, and sometimes I'm like, do people know what we're talking about? But, you know, the idea is you can't just buy cheap offsets and not do the work. You can't, we're not offsetting our way to climate, to saving the planet. And so really there's a big discussion around credits and offsets, and there's a lot of other bodies that are working on this. So this is kind of the weird thing in this space. So like, we've got to deal with everything related to net zero, but then you have 
once again, I'm going to use acronyms, so kill us all now. VCMI and ICVCM, who are working on both the supply <laughs> side of credits, like are credits, do they have high integrity? Yeah. Are you actually, like, are they real? Are they additional? Are they permanent? Are you working with indigenous communities and local communities? All of that. And then the demand side. When can you use credits? And I think that, that there's a general principle there that you got to do the hard work yourself. Like yeah. that's just the reality. We need everyone to reduce their own emissions. You can't buy your way. And there's real concerns around both what kind of credits people are using and whether you're just buying credits instead of reducing emissions. So that's a big piece. Transition plans. You know, there's a good story. I mean, the Australians are actually really good on climate as opposed to most other people. And they have the story of a, um, uh, an Australian man who lives in Sydney. And he's like, I've decided to stop drinking, but I'm going to do it in an ambitious but orderly way. So I'm going to stop drinking at 2049. I will be 101. And uh, and by the way, I didn't drink on Tuesdays uh, for a long time. So maybe it'll be give me an extra 10 years. And then I'm going to have a beer fridge called Carbon Capture and Storage. Boom. Um, so, but I think the point on that, I, I think it's a good story because it just points like we can't just wait till 2049. The pathway between now um, and 2049, whether you reduce emissions and they actually, we actually, you know, save the planet is huge. And so yeah. that's really, really key seeing early action, covering all your emissions. Um, you know, making sure that you're delivering. And then there's a whole transparency and integrity piece. Like right now, actually, it's not very transparent. Um, so we can't even tell who is actually making progress or not, and it's not comparable data. So we should be able to see that. You should be required to actually provide this in an annual way um, for the large corporates financials. They should be audited. It should be like financial statements, your corporate, uh, what yeah, you're yeah. doing on climate. And that's definitely coming, right? And we know that that's coming in the regulations. So Catherine, I want yeah. to ask you a question. So the science is the science, right? And we know that we we know where we need to be in that kind of you know as you roll up to a global level it's kind of clear but i want to ask you a sort of almost a more philosophical question and a, a, a slight anecdote so years ago i was much more on the activist end of the spectrum and i started something you might enjoy with a friend called cheat neutral the idea that you could you know cheat on your partner if you paid someone else to be faithful to theirs you know you offset infidelity as a way of poking fun at the offset oh. concept right so tom so, you know, we will we yeah. will yeah, yeah. not tell Natasha <laughs> no, that no, no, you no, no. just this is said like, that. No, this is an idea that tried to poke fun <laughs> at the idea that they're not equivalent. And through that, I actually spent a long time with other activists in 2007, 2008, trying to tear down the concept of carbon neutrality because I thought it was this moral outrage that people would claim this equivalence. And with many other people, we tore it down. And then I looked at it like a few years later and thought, oh, it's gone. And it wasn't that everybody suddenly started doing it perfectly. It was that all of these people inside corporations had been trying to do something and it had hit my sense of moral outrage that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And then once we made it sort of shameful for them to do that, they just sort of stopped and went back to their day jobs. And then years later, I looked at it and thought, did I do a good thing or did I not? So that's the precursor to a question I want to ask you, which is, you are, you know, understandably, the SG is concerned about greenwashing. And that's absolutely right. If people are saying one thing and not being genuine about what they're doing, we should call that out. At the other end of the spectrum, there are those in companies and others who are imperfect but trying and really trying to do their best, but they don't have all the answers and they don't have all the resources. And as we raise the criteria and as we put more and more scrutiny on them, we say, you've got to get this right. It's consequential. If you don't, there's going to be consequences. There's also then 
a moment of like, oh my God, this is actually a bit scary. You know, should I really do this? And some of them will then scuttle back into their little holes and say, this is all too much. So I just want to also recognize that we have a lot of people listening inside corporations who really are genuine about trying to make change, Yes, but they're not perfect and they don't have all the resources. And some of them are a bit scared that they're going to be asked to do something that's beyond their capability. So how do we do both? How do we both meet the greenwashing, but not go sort of like down the road of perfection to the point where we stop the momentum and we kill something that we want to see thrive? So it sounds like you tried to kill it, but thanks. Thank you well, it, for coming back. It's back I'm years later. Yeah. I'm joking. No, no. But like, look, I mean, you, you can't just say you're net zero or, you know, or carbon neutral and not do the work. Um, as I say, I mean, part of it is just taking the drama out of this and just actually saying, okay, what do you need to do? But I, I hear you, right? Like you can't make it so, the criteria so tough that you, you can't make it. But the science is the science, right? It's a journey. Right. It's called net zero by 2050. Although... To step back, because that's a bit misleading, it's global net zero by 2050. So we actually need, you know, folks in, in developed countries that can go faster to go faster, right? Mm. That's just the reality. But I think, you know, there are there is a lot of good action out there. And some of it is really hard, depending on what you're, you know, what you do. Uh, scope three emissions are hard. I think we're well aware of that. I mean, I've, you know, for some folks, for some folks, let's be clear, oil and gas companies, you know what your scope three is, just saying. Yeah. But if you have a long value chain with a million, you know, with a ton of different, you know, companies in your value chain, and uh, and for financial institutions, asset managers, it is harder, but we all need to do this. And you're seeing so much progress. Um, I was uh, talking to the German minister, who's really amazing. She's a firecracker. Uh, and she was talking about how, you know, they're using blockchain. And she is like, you know, this new company that's doing these things. So, look, we, we all are on this journey. But there is a price of admission, right? So that doesn't mean you can do nothing and say you're not zero and then yeah. say it's really hard and then there are no consequences. These are voluntary. You're literally standing up and saying, I want to be recognized in net zero. Why? I think a lot of folks are doing it because it's the right thing to do, but because they see it's good for business, right? So you have to you have to deliver. So I think, of course, but this is why just be, having to show your homework, I say to my kids, like, you want to get an A? Oh, okay, well, go do some work. Like, you know, stop playing video games. Um, and when you do your math, could you show all of your work so we can, you know, the, the teacher can see it and it may not be perfect. You're going to get better marks. So yeah. I think that's that's part of the logic behind this. No video games on the way to net zero. It makes a lot of sense. You've got to focus on this. But isn't it the case, Catherine, <laughs> that in a sense, it's right and proper for big companies, supermarkets, Walmart, steel companies to commit to net zero? But actually, some of the underlying factors here are beyond the company's control, or, or maybe the companies need to lobby. I mean, if you think about something like, you know, we, we were all in New York at Climate Week, and there are these enormous cars that weigh four tons. You come over to Europe, and the cars are small. It's because we have massive gasoline taxes in Europe and very little gasoline tax in the US. So isn't this ultimately about everyone recognizing that basically the government's got to take some action now? Isn't that the thing? Yeah, and I mean, we deal with that head on. I mean, part of it is the race, or it's the pathway to regulation. So we we acknowledge that we also need to have a pathway to regulation. But let me tell you how you get to regulation. Actually, you get the support by the 
by the the business world. Aha. And we got carbon pricing. I know you love talking about carbon pricing. Boss. I do. I do. Oh, in no. now. Particularly Sorry. with you because you, you're the superstar. You're the global know, star. You've got it. carbon pricing. It. Tell us how you but, did it. I mean, there's, well, there's a number of stories, like there's a number of lessons, I think, with, with how we got carbon pricing in Canada. But one of them was like, yeah, I mean, the environmental supported carbon pricing. That that will get you not that far. I mean, it'll get you like they supported. That's good. But I knew that we needed the support of, of business. So I literally went knocking on doors, knock, knock, knock. Hi, do you want to join our carbon pricing coalition, uh, leadership coalition? And some people are like, well, I don't know, maybe just to know what you're doing. But but then there were people like, yeah, we actually want that. So we got two banks. Then that was like the tipping point. We got five all five major banks in Canada. We got... We got um, uh, we got consumer goods companies, telcos, and, and we got an oil and gas company. And that really helped because it really showed that we had the, we had the support. And, and one thing we will deal with, like the reality is businesses can either support climate action or they can thwart it. I mean, I guess they can be neutral too. Um, but if you need climate action to meet your goals, like you need a carbon price, you should say that. You should then lobby for mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. what you shouldn't do, and I saw this, like, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we really support what you're doing in climate when I was the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. And then they go next door, the finance minister, knock, knock, knock. Yeah. Don't do it. All bad. And so we can't have that. We can't have misalignment. And, and within you know, business, they need to also at the highest levels be aligned. Because sometimes I feel sad for, you know, the ESG people or, you know, sustainable people, but they're trying really hard, but then there's no alignment within the, with, you know, within the business, you need to have alignment. And there's a number of ways, like you can look at executive compensation, there's a number of tools. So I think part of what I, I'm just a practical person, as you probably know. And so the recommendation we're trying to make are just like, practical things many that are out there with the top voluntary initiatives that they say these things and i think but it's remember we're dealing with like net zero bacon um or carbon positive milk apparently carbon positive milk that's interesting i don't know apparently clay that's something you know about but (laughs) yeah um so i mean i think that there's we just need to actually just say okay this is what needs to be done and then then it's up to shareholders consumers um environmentalists and others to actually look at this say whether it's real we are on the pathway to regulation and looking at the verification piece is still hard because if you're not regulated, it's, you know, a lot of this is, you know, on the voluntary side, although you're seeing um, TCFD principles disclosure, you know, coming into place. So there is a movement there. And it's, that if there is a, a big price, it, no, that's a good, <laughs> great answer. If there is a big price on it, it all goes, gets audited in the accounts anyway. So that's, that's yep. a great thing, you know, yeah. so we can, we can, we can get there that way. But I would just say like the one thing that we also can't forget, because sometimes people are like, this is a drag, like we don't really like doing this. But climate change isn't going away. Yeah. We just like had this massive hurricane in oh. Canada. And, every, you know, it, the water is hotter. So it's, it, it accelerates. It's supposed to absorb the, it's supposed to absorb the uh, energy, but it isn't. And so everyone, like, this is a real risk to business. It's a risk that, yes, you might get sued because you're not doing stuff. It's a risk that, uh, but it's a risk that Mark Carney calls it the Minsky moment, whatever, where like everyone's like, whoa. The we have massive climate events and everyone's like, oh my God, we have to adjust right now. So uh, you know, our friend Feike, but a lot of you know Feike, he always talked about we got to future proof your company. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this is also about. It's understanding risk. Like I, I feel sometimes we're a little bit weird still in the business world where people should really understand risk better. 
the risks are clear. Like climate change, even under the best scenarios, it's going to get worse. We know that. And so how are you dealing with the risk? How are you doing things that are sensible um, and, and really doing the work and looking at the opportunities, massive opportunities. This is the biggest economic opportunity ever, $3 trillion a year that needs to go to clean. So you can look at it as a risk, you can get a reward, but just actually get on the path and do it. Catherine, it seems to me that one of the challenges that you and your group face is how do you report? Because there is a lot of self-reporting. Right now, everybody is self-reporting, yes, based on science, but still a lot of interpretation space there. So how do you really know that apples are apples if you compare? And the second piece that is dangerous about the self-reporting is governments are also reporting. And so there is a non-zero chance that what companies are reporting for themselves is actually going to be duplicated, if you will, in the government's reporting because they're not under any nested approach that I think needs to be developed, which is tech-supported, let's call it blockchain for the time being, tech-supported, standardized accounting that nests the what, government, what corporations are reporting, what cities, what regions, what governments are reporting, so that we actually have a good sense of where we are going. Next year, we have the stock take. And yeah. frankly, with the with the with the very, very lax technologies that we have right now for reporting emissions or emission reductions, we're not going to know in the stock take if we're actually on track or not. So don't we need actually some much more third-party standardized accounting that can tell us where are we going and integrate it with government reporting as well? So there's a lot there, but the answer is yes. I mean, I think that you will see in the report a recognition of that. So I think that we we need to make sure, like especially the large emitters, right? They're like the multinational, like they're a very large emitter. We they have capacity, right? Like some people are like, they, of course, their capacity issues. The good thing about my group is like I have a you know a businesswoman from Colombia. She's like you know small medium sized enterprises in Colombia. You make this two one like they you know it's very hard to do, but with the large multinationals or the large emitters we. We need them to really do this this reporting in a standardized way. There are some really good initiatives. You probably saw uh, Macron and Bloomberg working together with the UN, um, which is great. Uh, to, to really have some platform where you actually have rigor and you have comparable data. Um, and so that there is a lot of good progress. Like I think it started, it was announced, but you know, sometimes the announcement, you're not sure where it's gonna go. Um, but they're working with. The Global Climate Action Portal, I know Paul, a CDP, you guys are part of it, like that's really important. And, and the Global Climate Action Portal can be uh, there. And it's the nexus with the UN, though, Christiana, that you're also talking about that's really important. Because when I was a minister, like you're doing top down as opposed, you don't have the bottom up. So actually, you know, you'll announce policies. But what if, if businesses are doing, you know, more ambitious stuff in the best case, or, you know, it's not having the impact. So you, you kind of have to do both. And this is where part of our mandate will be, you know, talking about the link with the global stock take, also not really accessible language, but really, how do you, you how do you bring together what businesses, non-state actors, businesses, um, financial institutions, cities and regions are a little bit different and probably easier, but how do you bring that into what the UN is doing to actually understand where is the world going? 
and and really see in the best case scenario, you see more ambition, right? You see corporates, financial institutions really stepping up where governments have not regulated. And so that they're pushing that the money is flowing unscaled to clean, although we're still seeing flowing unscaled to fossil fuels. So that has to change. That's also an equity and justice issue, which we haven't talked really about yet. But we need to see that emissions just have to, I say to people, it's actually not all that complicated. Emissions need to go down very quickly and the scale of money to clean has to go up very quickly. Of course, equity and justice is across that, but it's not unrelated um, because those most impacted are the ones who've done the least to cause it. And on the flip side, they're not getting the money they need to go to clean. So, um, but but rigor and detail and step by step. But I'm I I with the group. I have a very good group. I think we're really trying to be practical, not have a hundred recommendations. Write them in English. That's really important. People can understand what we're saying and say real things on the areas where there are real concerns about greenwashing, but also real opportunities. So, Catherine, you're in the middle of this. We take it that that report is due before uh, COP twenty seven. As an apparently well pop- before, well before, apparently <laughs> well before. Okay, wow. you're like the fastest so, group ever now. in yeah. the history, the history the of the UN. Yeah fastest group ever to get our work. We've actually are well advanced in our work. We've had really great submissions. We've done consultations. So, and we've had help from a lot, lots of folks. So I'm feeling pretty confident. Excellent. So with that context uh, and what you have learned, what are you still outraged by and what makes you the optimist that you always have been. Okay. So one of my outrage, okay, I'm just going to take like the most recent one. I think I saw you were a bit outraged by this, Christiane Figueres. So there was an interview with the president of the World Bank. <gasps> and he was saying the dodginess. Well, I'm not a scientist on the climate and science. So as I say to folks, yeah, that's a problem if you're not clear that that climate change uh, is man-made and like we're in a massive pickle right now. But it's a bigger problem because you're the world bank that we need you to flow money to actually get the clean solutions at scale. And I was having conversations with many folks that that's a massive problem right now with the world bank because um, they, there seems to be a view that it's how much money you spend. That's actually not, the, that's not the success. The success in the context of the World Bank is how much are you able to leverage from the private sector and how much are you able to get built? That is the measure that we need. And so guess what? Um, as I tell folks, we know who the shareholders are. So there are shareholders. Those are called countries. Uh, the countries need to step up, US, but Canada, other countries, they can actually change this. So um, I think that's key. Um, I think I'm also worried. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit outraged, a bit worried. People are using, uh, some folks are using uh, the illegal Russian war uh, to uh, defer action or to scale investments in fossil fuels. Um, and, and often they say, well, that's because we we need to support, um, you know, folks like in, in less developed countries, in particular Africa, that don't have electricity. Yes, we do need to do that. But I, I mean, often that is not the focus. These folks are off the grid. I've seen many amazing companies that are actually working on solar solutions at scale yeah. for folks that are off the grid. Like that's not uh, often when I hear from oil and gas companies, their first thing isn't like, how do they solve the problem of folks that uh, don't have electricity? 
electricity. When I lived in Indonesia, thank I thank you. In that is mm. one of my pet peeves right it. now. So but, thank but, you for that. that. But I will say there is a quid pro quo, and we are well aware of this because I have really smart members that are from Africa, that are from Latin America, that are from India, and they are saying, "Yes, we need the money, though. Stop telling us we can't do things. Fine, we get that we need to go to renewables, but where's the money? Yeah, show us the money. Three trillion dollars. So we need a whole new deal. Mia Motley, so many great leaders uh, from developing countries have said this, and we need to show the money. Folks need to do this. And it also does outrage me, honestly, that fossil fuel companies are making massive, massive profits. Jesus, and yeah. in Canada are demanding even more subsidies to do, you know, solutions that they should be investing in while they're giving the money back to their uh, through shared uh, share buybacks and executive compensation. So like, let's have some alignment. On the positive side, um, there's been a big shift. Like I actually think I meet a lot of corporates that are figuring this out, working hard and the impact they can have on their value, on their, on their supply chain. Like that's massive because they can support smaller companies. They yeah. can look for innovation. And so I think that is really, really important. Um, but one foot in front of the other, right? Like everyone needs to be picking up the slack. Sometimes governments are not going to be great. And I think we're going into a period of governments not being great. So we're going to need real leadership from the private sector, and we're going to need the young people out every single day. But we need regular people who, like uh, in Cape Breton, Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia was hit super hard. And I was listening to interviews and folks there are like, we now understand these one in a hundred year storms are happening every few years. This is like my house may go in the water. We need action. And that's really, it, it is comes back to carbon pricing, like regular Finally. people, we gave, we gave the money back to regular people when we put a price on pollution because you need people to be part of the solution, but people are smart. People know climate change is real. They know that there's a real cost um, and they want leadership. So I think real people are also what are gonna drive this. But to do that, maybe to start at the very beginning, we have to talk like real people to real people. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, like global stock take and even net zero, to be honest, like most people are no, no idea what we're all talking about. So certainly not H leg. They don't know what an H leg is. Um, it's well, like we a, look yeah. forward like to the report from H leg. And, and anyway. here's the thing. Why don't you put it out under a different name, Catherine? That would certainly get a couple oh, of people. That to, is good. To... I, I have to have some negotiations with the UN. They're a little bit wet. <laughs> the language. Oh, yes, I but, know that. I know that. Uh, we could have like a little thing underneath. Don't worry. Yeah. I am very, very focused on this. Subtitle it so that it's understood. What about calling okay. it the world's back? The world is back. <laughs> or actually do the work. Do the homework. Do the work. Do, the work. Yeah. do something catchy. Do the right okay. thing. Okay. Okay, great. Okay. Catherine, thank Henry, you so much. Thank you so much. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye, Catherine. All good. So Catherine McKenna, such a fantastic leader for such a long time on this issue. Now clearly just as focused and determined as she ever she's been. She has not lost her spunk, she, My God, she sure. hasn't, has she? Absolutely. Um, what do you leave the conversation with? Um, well, a couple of points. One thing, I, I'm just going to say one thing about blockchain is that uh, it, it may, it's amazing for, for um, what do you call it, Bitcoin and, and various currencies. It, you can just use normal databases. It doesn't have to be blockchain. But the key point is we need to record and verify, you know, what's happening and, and progress, uh, whatever technology we're using. Um, I, I think it is very exciting. She mentioned this, this initiative from uh, Bloomberg and Macron. The world is, and the governments and the OECD and the IMF and everyone's coming together around this need. You know, Mark Carney is doing a great bit of convening there along with, with Michael Bloomberg. 
Um, but I, I also want to point out some of the other things Catherine said, like, for example, she was talking about supply chains are important. And, you know, companies, by the way, do you know who plays your suppliers' uh, uh, energy bills? You do. So you, there's such a strong incentive to manage energy consumption of greenhouse gas emissions through supply chains. And then the final thing I want to really salute Catherine for, she got that carbon tax in in Canada and she, she made a reference to it. But for anyone who missed it, the secret was that the government didn't keep the money. They took the, the carbon tax in and they paid it straight out to the people, uh, almost kind of like a wealth transfer from the high emitters to, to, to the public. And that's the way you can get tax in and, and, and change the rules of the game. Hmm. Um, well, a lot there, but I, I'm just, grateful that it is Catherine who has been um, given this task because you can imagine that if we had a highly bureaucratic mind behind this, we would never get out of the rabbit hole. Mm, and yeah. she is so practical and so clear that I think she's going to make huge efforts to cut through all of that bureaucracy and just put out something that is practical, that is to the point, and that can be used by corporations as, uh, as guidance for doing the right thing. And, and, and to those who are doing greenwashing, to be able to differentiate. So I'm, I'm grateful for her attitude uh, of, uh, of just being incredibly practical and let's get it done. Yeah. yeah. What did you think, Christiana, about that issue that that I raised that you and I have talked about so much about the balance between momentum and perfection. Did you think that she feels like she's got that kind of in her crosshairs and she's going to deliver something that fits that need of a balance that won't slow our momentum, but increases the integrity? I mean, obviously she's got to balance lots of stakeholders. Well, that balance between rigor and, and broad participation or between yeah. integrity and momentum, you know, we, we've talked about it ad nauseum. It's always been a part of the major challenges of the climate regime. I, I remember having these discussions 20, 25 years ago. Right. Um, and it's not going to, we're not going to solve it with this. It's just that it's an ever-occurring challenge that we have to face every time. And I do think that she is well aware of it and she will do her darndest to put something out that, uh, as she says, is separating the chaff from the wheat yeah. uh, without cutting down on those who are really very sincerely trying and still don't know how to do it. There's one thing between trying and don't know how to do it and keep on trying. There's another, there is a completely different scenario if you're gaming the system. I think what she's trying to do here is to cut out those who are gaming the system and open up the possibilities for those who are sincerely committed to doing the emission reductions, but are still in the learning curve. Yeah. That's the balance, right? It's to sort of like, you know, make it all right to try and not know everything, but that you have to make a sincere effort and you're not actually dis being disingenuous and lying. So like threading that needle is a really complicated thing to do. But I agree with you. I felt like she had a real sense of the necessity of doing that. Of course, the implementation of it is difficult and no doubt, um, you know, 
everybody will be very unhappy with the outcome, but that probably is a marker of success to some degree, right? Um, of having found a compromise. Right. Okay. Anything else to add or should we? Yeah, we we, go, we go. figure these things out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give a last word to, to my, my friend, someone I greatly admire, uh, Lois Guthrie, who's been a, a, a carbon accountant for, for 25 years and she's an absolute genius. And, and, and people say to her, you know, how are we ever going to calculate all this carbon? She says, well, we'll calculate the tax and we've got intergovernmental tax agreements and, you know, we've got frameworks. We can do this. Humans are clever. There's all sorts of things that occur to me in response to that. I do agree that Lois Guthrie is a genius, but isn't it true that a profit in the US is not the same as a profit in Europe and to today's taxation rules, and we haven't really sorted that out? We can't do that. And to be honest, Lois hasn't been doing it 25 years. She's been doing it 15 years. But, right. but is, we know she's a genius. We'll get there. She is a genius. Yeah, okay. She is yeah. a genius. Yeah. She is a genius. Right, Finnegan Tui, we've got some music for you. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. Really appreciate it. What a fun episode. Be back next week. Bye. Bye. I think the thing I miss most is feeling curious. Like, why do I not shout anymore or leap up and down with excitement about the way that sunlight reflects in a puddle? Exclaim about how the clouds look like stingrays or witches again? Or how the sunset reminds me of home and how lucky I am to be here? I remember I used to. But all of a sudden I seem to be flirting with the idea of being an adult for the first time. And whilst I want to be excited about joining the real world, I'd, I'm, I'm not. And I think it's because as these new responsibilities have fallen on me and pressure has arisen, like things are not as beautiful as they were. You know, things are right and wrong and true and false and left and right. Everything has its place, its name, its ingredients. And because of this, miracles seem to have become more rare. And so this song is about wanting to let go of that cold but rational skepticism that's kind of grown up in me. My desire to let my guard down and be vulnerable. Vulnerable for someone else, vulnerable for myself. And just to be able to be and take something in and see something as it is, as opposed to kind of dissecting it. And this song is about a time where that did happen for me. A time where these shackles were kind of ripped off. It involved the ocean, it involved the beginning of love. The song is called The Guard, and I hope you like it. Hold on, you're becoming a man That's what they tell
So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Finnegan Tui, folks. That was amazing. Uh, the Guard is the name of this song. I am so impressed um, by the sound that uh, Finnegan has captured on his latest record, Zephyr, and which The Guard is the opening track. So yeah, that's just the start of the album. So much more for you to hear as it plays. And I know you like audio because you're listening to a podcast, but my weekend listen recommendation to all you listeners is to go to Finnegan's YouTube and watch the full audio visual journey of the record. I just watched it. It's beautifully shot. You know, it's in 4K. So, hey, dim the lights, put it on the biggest screen you have. It's phenomenal. Finnegan Tui has a Bandcamp, a Patreon. I'm, I'm a big fan of Patreon. And he's a 22-year-old composing and performing genius and prolific. So this is a great artist to start following now, especially if you want more than just a song to listen to. All the links to his socials, music, YouTube are in the show notes. Thank you to Finnegan Tui. Oh, I haven't said my name yet. My name is Clay. I'm the producer of Outrage and Optimism, and welcome to the wrap-up of episode three. You know, I was thinking about it earlier, and I'm kind of like a doorman for the podcast. You know, as you exit the podcast, making sure you don't forget your hat, your umbrella, your goodie bag, you know, everything you need on the way out into the world. So here we go. Thank you to our guests this week, Helen Clarkson and Catherine McKenna. Now, Climate Week is over. But did you miss a session? Do you want to share an inspiring quote with colleagues? You know, are you considering attending next year? Do you you watch YouTube videos at night instead of sleeping? Helen Clarkson and the wonderful people at The Climate Group have got you covered. 
climateweeknyc.org. You can go watch all of the sessions from last week on demand. So links in the show notes to that and Helen's socials. Thank you, Helen. And Catherine McKenna, friend of the pod, one of our favorite Canadians. Uh, Catherine Hayho, definitely being in that cohort. Actually, that kind of brings up an interesting thought, which is maybe maybe Canadians hold the secret on uh, how to talk about climate like normal in a way that, you know, makes sense. Anyway, I live near Canada. I like Canada. And we actually have a pretty sizable audience in Canada. So shout out to our Canadian listeners. And thank you to Catherine for taking our call. Links to her social media in the show notes. Uh, She's really fun to follow. So check her out over there. Now, Christiana, Tom, Paul, and Outrage and Optimism are on social media, posting and sharing all things stubbornly optimistic. And if Twitter were like an urban heat island, stay with me, which, I mean, it really is, you know. All of our social accounts would be like a beautiful neighborhood park with trees providing shade and like a cool river you can swim in. That's a nice image. I like that. At Outrage Optimism is our tag. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is hot right now. Don't know why. Can't figure it out. But anyway, we'll see you there. And last, but certainly not least, shout out to our colleague Freya Newman for getting her work published in Nature Communications uh, of her master's research. Freya, congratulations. I'm pulling up the title here. The title of her research that was published is Nocturnal Plant Respiration is Under Strong Non-Temperature Control, which to me sounds good. I only understood like half the words. So Freya, we would love to have you come on at the end of the podcast and explain what this research is all about. And hey, if you're not feeling up for it, totally understand. You don't have to do it. You actually could nominate one Canadian to explain this research because they know how to talk about science. And it's my new theory that something is going on in the Canadian education system that is just the answer. It's my new theory. Okay, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism in your feed next week. See you then.